0: Hi everyone, thanks for coming, (coughs) forgive me, I've been, um, when I decided, you know, about two months ago, I was like in a, my 2010 Kia Soul, which is the nicest thing I own, and I was at uh, Hood River in Oregon, and I was, it was 4am and I was deciding where I was going to move, and I chose Austin, when I chose Austin I forgot that I'm allergic to the air. So I've been like Kind of sick for like A week or two I can't even tell anymore um, It's like vaguely It's like that feeling Where you're about to sneeze But for two weeks yeah. but, That's normal? Yeah um, um, I'm glad I got The teacher's cup though We're at Rainforest Cafe I had the best veggie burger I've ever had in my life At Rainforest Cafe In 1998
1: and the MGM
0: Grand in Las Vegas, I was it was right before I saw Carrot Top live <laughs> Tremendous performance What an entertainer um, So um, This is before you know 1-800-collect like blew him up, you know um, so today I wanted to talk about, and I was afraid I was going to scare people away with this word surrender, you know, because um, uh, for lack of a better term, Westerners, I don't know if we're Westerners, but whatever, most, a lot of us might be Westerners, um, um, it, which is also totally like ethnocentric, like we place ourselves in the center of the map. Anyway, but like um, uh, the word surrender is this naughty, kind of despicable thing that you would never want to do, right? Or if you do do it, it's this like totally self-absorbed martyrdom thing too, which is the other end of the, of the kind of, I'm the center of the universe spectrum, you know? Um, for me, and I have a, I have a, I'm kind of coming out of the closet here. Um, for me, um... These practices of uh, what in the East Asian Buddhist tradition they call entrusting, true entrusting, or shinjin, or uh, in the yogic traditions they call bhakti, um, are really the center of my practice. Um, A lot of what you learn when you come here, or a lot of what you learn at Buddhist meditation instruction, um, in terms of... um, uh, awareness of the breath, awareness of sensations, you know awareness of the temporality of mental phenomena and stuff like that i don 't do that um, i haven 't done that for about f- three or four years. Um, I actually uh, entrust myself I lovingly entrust myself to the dynamic functioning of all things and that 's my that 's my central practice and the way I do that. Is by uh, reciting the names of Amida Buddha. Um, so I, I mean, the Zen school could ostensibly kind of kick me out, um, but uh, they're not here. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think it has a lot to offer, and I think it has a lot to offer. And I'm still a totally a Zen priest, Zen practitioners, and you know, I it's almost like. Uh, one time, Gil Franzal, because Gil Franzal was his Zen priest, and then when he, he went to uh, uh, Thailand, quite by accident, because when you trained in Japan, you used to have to do what they called making visa trips, because you get a 90-day tourist visa, and you have to pop out for a week and then pop back in in order to renew your visa. So back in the day, when people were doing monastery training in Japan, they'd either go to Korea or go to Thailand to, for their visa trip. Um, and so he went to Thailand and then up practicing Vipassana there and fell in love with it and became a Vipassana teacher. And when people asked him about choosing, you know, he said, well, my religion is Zen, but my practice is Vipassana. You know, so I kind of feel like my religion is Zen and my practice is uh, Pure Land or Nembutsu practice or Bhakti practice. You know? um, Pure Land Buddhism won't let you call it Bhakti. Um, because it's a little bit uh, less ecstatic um, than bhakti is. Uh, And I'll I'll define some of these terms in a minute. But uh, there's a tradition of the hijiri in Japan. And the hijiri were uh, wandering mendicants that would go from, maybe they spent some time at a monastery and they're just like, I'm good. You know, and leave. And then they're kind of wandering mendicants and they go from village to village and they and they just chant the name of Amida Buddha and dance. And they incite these dance parties of chanting the name of Amida Buddha, which is very, very akin to, if you study any of the uh, Vishnu devotee traditions, the Vaishnava traditions, there's uh, uh, Sri Chaitanya, who uh, who invented the Samkirtan, which is what the Hare Krishnas do, which is j- dancing and chanting in the streets. You know? So, I mean, not unrelated. Um, the main obstacle, I believe, for us and uh, what we would call devotional practices is that I think we largely view them as unintelligent. Um, I think we, lo- we we don't see them. And, I, and for myself, when I started feeling the kind of pull to this type of practice, uh, the, the biggest obstacle was for me that I couldn't rationalize it. You know, it's like, I actually want to be like a, like the word devotee makes, makes my, some people makes their skin crawl. For me, it may, for me, it gives me goosebumps, like devotee, like that's exciting to me, you know? Um, and how do I become an apologist for this? Because I'm so smart and smart people aren't devotees, sheep are devotees or whatever, you know what I mean? Or, um, or ecstatic people, you know? Um, people that want to feel good, you know? Because, of course, that's not me, I'm a practitioner, I would not want to feel good. <laughs> you know. um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that and help us, because the biggest obstacle to this, like I said, the biggest obstacle to this kind of practice is um, our, uh, our need for things to be conceptually logical. You know? And one of the things that logical and illogical philosophies have in common is that they're equally useless as philosophies you know um, uh, in terms of a kind of a body of knowledge or a body of interpretation you know if your interpretation is logical or illogical it's actually kind of equally not so helpful for transformation as something that is kind of a rubber hits the road practice if that makes any sense you know so you can have a very sound understanding of the way the or or Zen is going to liberate you you know, um, but that very, very sound understanding uh sound understandings don't liberate people. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it's conceptual, and uh, I'm still at the center of it. Okay. so I wanted to share with you a little bit, and w- one of the things that we need to do is kind of uh, remember start to have an inquiring mind about what we think practice even is about or what we think awakening is even about you know? and um, there's this great section at the end of the first chapter of the Vimalakirti Sutra where you know they're talking about the Buddha field and he's talking about how splendid the Buddha field is and then Shariputra kind of thinks like well, then why isn't it? You know, can you relate to that? You know, if everybody's talking about how wonderful the world is, or how wonderful the universe is, Shariputra had this very human response. They're saying like, yeah, Buddha, but it's not. You know? Um, and Buddha says, um, you know, if your eyes are closed, or he may have used the example, uh, if you were born blind, and uh, you don't see the sun and the moon, is that the fault of the sun and the moon? You know? And then, actually, I was going to read, but I don't really need to read. I'll just paraphrase, because they're so sutras. Have you ever read a sutra? Um, (laughs) um, So, uh, and then Buddha sticks his toe in the earth. Oh, hold on, wait a minute. I do want to read it, because actually what makes it, so is he says, they don't just, because, you know, they don't just say he sticks his toe in the earth. He says, they say, um, where does he Thereupon, the Lord touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe, <laughs> And suddenly it was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels and magnificent array of hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems until it resembled the universe to of Yuha. Called, okay, long word, skip it. Um, everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving themselves seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses, Then the Buddha said to Venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, do you see the splendor of virtues of the Buddha field? Shariputra said, I see it, Lord. Here before me is a display of splendor such as I have never beheld. The Buddha said, Shariputra, this Buddha field is always thus pure, but the Tathagata makes it appear to be soiled by many faults in order to bring about the maturity of inferior living beings. For example, Shariputra, the gods of the heaven all take their food from a single precious vessel, Yet yeah, the nectar which nourishes each one differs according to the differences of the merits each has accumulated. Just so, Shariputra, living beings born in the same Buddha field see the splendor of the virtues of the Buddha fields of Buddhas according to their own degrees of purity. So, um, in this sutra, Buddha's reminding us that the world you're perceiving is your world. It's not the world. You know? And, um, there's this great phrase that Dogen uses, and there's a whole fascicle on it, and I lectured on it, it's, I think in 2000, in the fall of 2016. Um, and, uh, the, the lecture, you might remember this because it's a memorable phrase, but the, the fascicle in, in Japanese is called Zenki, and Zen means complete. And key is this really interesting word, and it means how how it's working, you know. Um, so it often gets translated as the total dynamic functioning. Total dynamic functioning. Yeah. So in the Buddhist tradition, instead of positing Brahman the way they would in the yogic, in the Vedic or Upanishadic-based yogic traditions, instead of positing a type of divinity, uh, in the Buddhist world we we take out that kind of the personalness of that divinity, and say it's total dynamic functioning. Because even any notion of divinity is contingent upon total dynamic functioning. You know, So in good early Buddhism, you don't really have a sense of divinity. And you don't really uphold oneness as kind of a good thing. The interdependence is what makes the world so shaky. So in early Buddhism, oneness isn't this kind of graceful, benevolent force. You know? It's actually what makes life so hard, the interdependence of things. You know, now now in, in kind of modern Buddhism, we use interdependence as this kind of um, beautiful net. You know, um, but in early Buddhism, it's like it's a net. You know, and you get stuck in it. You know, um, so but um, it's right there at the beginning. The most fundamental, basic Buddhist practice is refuge. You know, divesting myself from the project of myself and taking shelter in something that offers an alternative. And even right there, right at the beginning, as non-theistic as they wanted to be, you still get this sense of leaving behind something and and taking the shelter of something greater, or something more trustworthy. Right there at the beginning of early Buddhism. And then what happens slowly is that you had yogic deity practices Develop alongside with very sophisticated non-dual philosophies in Indian history, and so they really integrated. Like if you look at Adi Shankara or Patanjali, these are yogi teachers. Shankara is the founder of the Advaita Vedanta school, which is the the non-dual um, Upanishadic tradition. Um, and then there's the um, Patanjali was founder of the I think the um, Nath Nath yogis or something and um, they both have this very sound non-dual philosophy but they still which is very influenced by Nagarjuna who is a a, uh, Buddhist teacher am I losing you by talking about all these kind of like details okay Um, but they still had their deity practices and they and they had to kind of you know you do these deity practices over this framework of this non-dual philosophy. You know, and it turns out it still works. It still works. You can believe in God without believing in God. You know? Um, And, uh, uh, like uh, Brad Warner's book, There is No God and He's Always With You. You know? Um, Because in Buddhism we have this sense of Zenki, this total dynamic functioning. You know? And Dogen, and I'm gonna read off my phone. I emailed this to myself last night. Um, if you, if you, we look at what Dogen has to say about effort, it's very interesting. Dogen and Shinran, the founder of the of the uh, Jodo Shinshu school, which is the largest Pure Land sect in Japan, lived across the street from each other. They're contemporaries in Kyoto. There's a, they just found an old map of Kyoto. And Dogen and Shinran, uh, during the same years, lived across the street from each other. Um, Shinran Shonin, the founder of the Jodo Shinshu. So this is this would be about twelve fifty or something like that, you know. Because um, Dogen, he set up a Heiji out in the country, but he actually died in the capital. And and when he first got back from from China, he set up shop in the capital. So he was in the capital for maybe twenty. 1226, well, all of his life, but then 1226 to uh, like 1230 something when they went moved out to the Cypress Forest. But um, Dogen Zenji talks about exertion. The great way of the Buddha and patriarchs, sorry that they say patriarchs, the Buddha and ancestors, same stuff, um involves the highest form of exertion, which goes unceasingly in cycles. From the first dawning of religious truth through the tests of discipline and practice to awakening and nirvana. So you hear that and you're like, yeah, you know, maybe you are, you know, Um, you know, you, you see Zen as this kind of self-powered, self-motivated, self-transforming practice, you know, and um, I don't know if you've ever met anybody that really thought they were going to liberate themselves. Um, when you live at Tassajara, a lot of times these twenty-year-old boys come through that are that are going to do Zen right, and they know everything. I used to be one of them. Um, uh, they're going to do it all right, and they're and like this isn't hard enough, and this isn't good enough, and uh, people that really think they're going to liberate themselves are kind of assholes, you know. Um, <laughs> So you hear that language, and you're kind of like it. Kind of, it can kind of rev up. And what's being revved up? I'm going to do this. I can do this. You know, um, according and then and then Dogen. Because as soon as Dogen gives you something, he, he like kind of just takes it right back. You know, accordingly, it is exertion that is neither self-imposed nor imposed by others, but free and uncoerced. What kind of exertion is not self-imposed? Not imposed by others, but is free and uncoerced. You know. And then skipping ahead. This exertion sustains the sun, the moon, and the stars. It sustains the earth and sky, body and mind, object and subject, the four elements, and the five aggregates. Five aggregates are form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. The merits of these exertions are sometimes disclosed, Sometimes disclosed, and thus arises the dawn of religious consciousness, which is then tested in practice. Sometimes, however, these merits lie hidden and are neither seen nor heard nor realized. Yet hidden though they may be, they are still available because they suffer no diminution or restriction. Diminution or restriction, whether they are visible or invisible, tangible or intangible. At this moment, a flower blossoms, a leaf falls, and it is a manifestation of sustained exertion. A mirror is brightened, a mirror is broken, and it is a manifestation of sustained exertion. Everything is exertion. To attempt to avoid exertion is an impossible evasion because the attempt itself is exertion. This sustained exertion is not something that people of the world naturally love or desire, yet it is the last refuge of all. Like, what does that mean? You know, that exertion, um, what is it, what is, what is it, what kind of feedback are we getting on our sense of effort if we're told that um, exertion sustains the sun, the moon, and the stars? Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to mention Oh, so I want to talk a little bit about this deity practice. So, you know, we we have this kind of erroneous term, Hinduism, which I think is a Persian way of describing the, the religions of the Indus Valley. But um, it's this giant um, mix of all of these Vedic and non-Vedic practices. I think what we would call Orthodox Hinduism, you would have to call coming from being influenced or informed by Vedic, Literature, um, which is strictly speaking not really indigenous to India, it's kind of coming from more Afghanistan-Persia area, and uh, kind of entering the subcontinent and and filtering throughout about, I think, five thousand years ago or so, um, or less, and uh, and 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 a broad variety of yogic practices with a lot of different um, philosophical belief systems, you know, um, duality, non-duality, qualified non-duality. Um, and, uh, and they're all kind of cross-contaminating throughout Indian religious history, you know. And uh, a lot of them share practices, even though their philosophies are very, very different, you know. Like, Buddhist meditation isn't all that Buddhist, actually. Like, shamatha. Shamatha is not really a Buddhist practice, this, this quiescence practice. You know, or following the breath, or entering the jhanas. None of that's really Buddhist. All of that's pre-Buddhist practice. You know, but the specific agenda of seeing the impermanence or lack of inherent existence of all compound phenomena, that's where it becomes a Buddhist agenda, you know. But the practices are all very similar. So you have these uh, medieval, we're talking 1300s or earlier, um, from uh, 700 to 1300s, uh, Tantric and Bhakti traditions. Um, tantra, I would describe as uh, choosing a, a deity to merge with or identify with and integrate into yourself. So transforming yourself by taking on the qualities of a deity through the, through the process Uh, they call it generation, generating the visualization of the deity, picturing all of its qualities, and then merging the deity back into the self. You know? Um, And one of the ways people think that Tantra has anything to do with sex is that one of those ways of merging with the deity is having sex with your imaginary deity. So, creative, fun. Um, And then there's the Bhakti tradition, which isn't so much merging that deity with yourself, but just uh, aligning yourself with this energy by way of adoration you know and seeing all manifest existence see i could tell you that things are good or whatever but actually nothing generates our love like eyeballs and a nose does that make sense you know what i mean that's the relatable thing so you have to anthropomorphize these these qualities in order for them to stir your heart i've been devoted to people much more than i've been devoted to any kind of project or concept you know? So that's why. And if, have you have you looked at some of these Hindu gods? Gorgeous! You know? Giant, beautiful eyes, just really pleasant faces and stuff like that. You know? Um, little baby Krishna. I mean, who doesn't love that little baby Krishna with, with the honey jar? You know, a little baby Shiva, like asleep on the lion's uh, skin, you know, with a little trident. It's like, it's evocative. You know? So, so in the yoga tradition, they call that your Ishta, your Ishvara. And you are adoring existence by way of adoring the deity. You know, seeing the deity as being um, uh, a kind of um, symbol for existence. You know, so when you adore, adore, when you adore all phenomena through your deity, it adores you back. So. Um, the efficacy of this style of practice was not lost on uh, medieval Buddhists. You know. And then you started to get these three particular sutras that they call the Pure Land Sutras, um, where they talk about the visualization of this Buddha, Amida. Amida Buddha. Amida Buddha was formerly the, the uh, bodhisattva that vowed to just uh, liberate all beings. And he's like, everybody that, everybody that calls me to mind, I'm going to take them to Sukhavati, which is the land of bliss. You know, Everybody that calls me to mind is immediately in Sukhavati. You know? And that's where this tradition, this Pure Land tradition came from. And so instead of, and even Nagarjuna, who's considered the most sophisticated Buddhist philosopher, um, someone asked him, is there an easier way? And he kind of went like, shame on you for asking me that. And yes, there is. <laughs> you know, um, he said, well, there's, you know, there's, there's this Amida Buddha, and if you just recite Amida Buddha's name, then uh, actually you'll be reborn in the land of, of bliss, Sukhavati. Sukha is the opposite of Dukkha. Yeah. Um, so imagine trying to learn all this, learn all this teachings, um. And I, and I I have this too. I I always thought if I learned it all, then I then I'd get it. You know, and actually, if you watch the Shinron ca- cartoon, there's this great scene where he said, "Oh, back when I was training, I thought I thought I would be liberated due to my efforts. I was so foolish. You know. Um, and I always thought if I learned it all, then I'd get it, and then I'd be free. I'd be I'd, I'd be free by way of just learning. It. It. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, I'm just accumulating understanding of Buddhism, which I've, I've done decently, you know. Um, uh, the main issue, the, the main thing it's offered me is uh, being hard to relate to, <laughs> especially when I'm trying to get very simple concepts across and I start talking Sanskrit, you know. Um, um, and, I, and when you listen, I used to listen to, like, Indian philosophy podcasts. And it's like listening to chefs talk. It's not about liberation. It's about, um, isn't this interesting? That's an interesting way of thinking about things. Huh. Look at that. That's an interesting way of thinking about things. And I'm like, guys, are we ever going to get to that whole, like, your world is transformed part? Or is it just swapping notes on interesting ways of thinking about things? You know, I think that's a lot of... the We like Buddhism because it's kind of, like, sophisticated or cool. Or it gives us a framework for uh, interpreting things. But it doesn't really... Give you that vision of the world when the Tathagata sticks their toe in the in the billion galactic universe. You know, what is keeping us from that vision of this world as a Buddha field? You know, and and I would say, from in my experience, and I, and we all have different dispositions. This might not be. The other day, somebody came to me and like, you keep talking about this devotional practice. Why don't you tell me about it? And I did my like elevator pitch, and then she's like, okay, you know, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, well, and because I'm kind of like, for me, the meditation stuff was, I wasn't really going anywhere with it. And a lot of the people that got into Pure Land Buddhism, and at somewhere in their biography, they're like, yeah, I, I was training at the Tendai monastery and I was doing all the traditional Buddhist meditations and. I don't know. I never, never, nothing ever happened for me, and I feel very similarly, you know. So when people try to talk to me about healing, I'm like, well, you know how meditation just like doesn't deliver, and they're just like, no, you know. And and so some people don't have that experience, you know. So if you love meditation, traditional Buddhist meditation, go to town, you know. Um, I think for some of us, maybe if we're a little bit more emotional, um, this is a this is a more accessible path, you know. And they and they're not. These are still practiced side by side in, in, in China and Korea. It's a, it's a uniquely Japanese thing to say, you have to choose, you know? Um, but, oh, what was I gonna say about that though? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, what's keeping us from seeing the world as the Buddha field? It's like, you gotta open the windows. You know, you got to open the windows to let the light in. And like, how do you open the windows? You know, it's like, I'm over here doing my staunch practice, and for whatever reason, I'm not having a warm feeling towards the world. And it's like, are you practicing a warm feeling towards the world? If you're not practicing a warm feeling towards the world, it's not, how is it ever supposed to get in? You know, And and what is a method, by any means necessary, how do you cultivate a warm feeling towards the world? Like, well, I'm not going to think about Amita Buddha saving me and that I can relax because that's unsophisticated. You know? But if you try it, imagine what it would feel like in the midst of your effort, in the midst of your self deprecation, in the midst of. Because I've, I've talked. To, I see people in practice discussion, people come to me, I know I'm not good enough. That's our first. That's, I mean, all, a lot of practice discussion, like the first few sentences, is some kind of version of I know I'm not good enough. You know? What if you imagine that there was a Buddha that already guaranteed your freedom. you know, And you can actually just relax and entrust yourself to the total dynamic functioning of what's happening. What would that feel like? What's the psychophysical experience of that? And is that something more like the liberation that you were looking for through your own effort? You know? So and there's, a, there's a Hindu text. Well, I say Hindu. There's a there's a yogic text called the Bhairava Sutra. It comes from the um, Kali Kali devotee tradition of Orissa and Kashmir. It's Kashmir Shaivism, um, and there's this line that goes "sting of a wasp." This is stanza seventy. There's this neat kind of translation of it too by Lauren Roach called uh, "The Radiant Sutras." Um, the sting of a wasp, rip of a nail, a razor slice, a needle's plunge, a piercing word. A stab of betrayal, the boundary crossed, a trust broken. In this lacerating moment, pain is all you know. Life is tattooing scripture into your flesh, scribing incandescence into your nerves. Right here in this single searing point of intolerable concentration, wound becomes portal. Brokenness surrenders to crystalline brilliance of being. And um, I don't know if any of you have ever had a hard time. <laughs> but like a significantly hard time. Have you ever experienced a tremendous cleaning of house and spaciousness at the tail end of having a really hard time? You know? Um, people talk about mind and ego. Let's just drop this whole conversation. That's, that's the main teaching of Land Buddhism or devotional Buddhism or Bhakti. You know? People talk about mind and ego. Let's just drop the whole conversation. Consider instead, there is no mind, there is no ego. There is only the vivid reality of this surprising moment at play. Beckoning. And then Shinran Shonin. If it is understood that the person of Shinjin, Shinjin means true and trusting, if it is understood that the person of Shinjin dwells in the stage of the truly settled, see, that's one of the results of, of, the, of the mind of entrusting. If you can psychologically and emotionally get to the point where you don't have a conceptual roadblock to this experience of true entrusting, what, what comes about is this, is this sensation of being truly settled. Because you reflect on your life. All of the effort that I've put into it. All of the manipulation that I've put in. I want this person to like me. I don't want this person to like me. Um, Has it ever worked? Has it ever worked? Have you ever gotten anything that you meant to get in any kind of sustaining way that delivered what you thought it would? Like, has it happened once? You know? So, 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 like, this purely tradition is kind of like, you know what? Let's call it on this effort. you know. Let's fold and just entrust ourselves to the whole dynamic functioning of reality. You know? And then have the experience of feeling truly settled. If it is understood that the person of Shinjin dwells in the stage of the truly settled, there is no calculation on the part of the practitioner. Hence, we speak of other power, in which no working is true working. Since practitioners have become free of calculation, as to whether they are good or evil, pure or defiled, it is said that no working is true working, because persons of complete entrustment dwell in the same stage of the future Buddha. And it is certain that they are grasped never to be abandoned. Hence, what we call the other power means that there is no room for the slightest particle of calculation on the part of the practitioner. For this reason, it is said that no working is true working. The Great Master Honen said, "Beyond this, nothing needs to be said. Simply entrust yourself to the Buddha." And I read this, and it sounds, you know, um, it's important to understand it in its own yogic context and not conflate it with Abrahamic um, devotion, because it starts to want it starts to make us want to go there. But if you think of it as a pragmatic necessity. Those, that eyes and those nose of that Buddha that you're devoted to as a pragmatic necessity to give rise to that feeling of um, settledness. You know, Because that description, that, that, that sensation, when life's complicated or frustrating or I think it shouldn't be going the way it should and I give it away, your interpretation is not necessary for your life to unfold. It never has been. You know, I'm over here interpreting my life, figuring out what meaning to make out of it. It's, it's optional. Interpretation is totally optional. You know? Um, it's like I said, uh, one time I was in this relationship, and my partner, who had been in kind of in straight relationships, was like, well, if you're queer, does that mean I'm queer? And I'm like, you don't, you don't have to. Like, it's, it's optional. Like, identification is optional. You know? Um... And uh, and interpreting and figuring out what meaning to weave out of it is is not necessary, you know. So you can get this feeling of settledness through. And if it's not coming through this, you know. And especially, you know, we're doing a twenty-four-seven monastic practice as working people. You know, that's a tall order. You know, so for me. When I do... I work three miles away. I make $9 an hour. I'm 36. I have a lot to be grumpy about. I had a a 10-year relationship that fell apart. Ostensibly, I have a lot to be grumpy about, right? Um, And um, I can't afford furniture yet. (laughs) You know? I don't know where my pink slip is. It might be kind of in the mail for my car between here and Oregon. I have a lot to be grumpy about. And I take my walk to work. And in my walk, I could be... Um, feeding myself my own interpretation of my reality you know Um, or I could have my rosary and recite the nambutsu and give away my interpretation over and over and over again I don't have to do sashin I don't have to be be seated I don't have to wake up at 5.30 well I do I do have to wake up at 5.30 I I usually do Um, and you're, I'm just chanting this namamita buts Nam Dabu, Nam Dabu, namdaba 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 namdaba, just like people in all over India are saying Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare, Om Namo Shivaya Om Namo Shivaya Om Namo Narayana Om Namo all over India Om Mani Padme Om Mani Padme It's not it's not folk religion. It's not it's not. Um, we don't need to derogatorize it. It's actually um, might be more sophisticated than the meditation we're doing in terms of its efficacy in relinquishing ourselves from our interpretation of our life. Or relinquishing our interpretation of our life. Does that make sense? And you can do them side by side, because there's things that sitting meditation is going to teach you about yourself that you're not going to learn, because there's also, you know, bhakti zombies and nembutsu zombies that just want to cultivate the positive and the infinite light and stuff like that. But actually it's about metabolizing what we are so tempted to perceive as negative and letting it unfold as a surprising dance. You know, and bearing in mind that it's all going to be over soon. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, this, and the Hindu word that they use in Bhakti for that kind of devotion is uh, Sharanagati. And uh, Sharanagati has the same root word, uh, sara. Which, if you've ever been here, when we chant the uh, the refuges in Pali, buddham nam Sara, sarah, it means going into a house. You know, it means taking cover. And when you're taking cover of something, you can't be convinced of anything else. You know, if you need water and I bring you a cake, you don't want my cake. You know, if you think, oh, my life would just be better if I had a partner, um, but then you're thirsty and someone get well, you have a partner or water you're going to choose the water. You know? So, so choosing the thing that you're going to, um, taking shelter in something that's going to deliver for you, that you need. You know? Um, and there's a great, I was going to read it to you, but I, I, I'm out of time. Um, there's a great, um, the the guy that was the translator, I forget his name, KK something, um, or he had two letters and then a, and then a surname, but he was the translator when all the hippies were at Neen Karoli Baba or Maharaji's ashram. He was the translator for them. And he there's a little essay about what he has to say about this uh, entrusting, you know, this entrusting. Um, because when you and like the name of the talk, uh, and I've had this experience. And if you can get there, if you could get there psychologically and put your conceptuality aside, if you can adore. Reality, it immediately reciprocates. I guarantee it. Yeah. Um, and I don't really have time for questions, right? Well, I would need it. I'm supposed to say at 11, right? Yeah. I don't really have time for questions, but I'm going to hang out. And so come to me if you have anything, or you can sign up for practice discussion if you want to talk about things. And I still teach Zen. I'll talk to you about Zen. I remember what it's like. <laughs> but okay cool thanks so much